everybody in the department is is most proud about is the fact that we've repatriated as of this week 100,000 Americans who had been stranded overseas since the beginning of this crisis. There were managers who said I can never let my person go telework. If you're working five days a week out of the office, you're you're obviously sloughing off. You're not doing work. That was a real conversation, and now people are saying, "Wow, like people can be more effective." We probably advanced the state of information technology, and by that I mean modernizing the workplace. We probably pushed that in the span of three months, which would have normally taken us four or five years had we been left to the normal course of business. Time and again during the COVID-19 pandemic, federal IT has proven its value as a vital service delivery lifeline between government and citizens. Meritalk is chronicling the untold stories and lessons of federal IT success as the nation takes its first steps toward recovery. Welcome to the Meritalk podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT and the COVID Crisis. In this chapter, we explore the State Department's accelerated IT modernization journey in the midst of the storm. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow. Federal agencies don't get any older than the venerable Department of State, created in 1789 as the first executive branch department and charged with advising the president on policy and conducting diplomacy on the nation's behalf. With a presence in more than 160 countries, few agencies are responsible for maintaining such a far-reaching network around the world. With the COVID-19 storm gathering on the horizon in January, long-standing traditions at state regarding how to conduct business face-to-face meetings in offices, were put to the test. In an exclusive interview with Meritalk, Principal Deputy CIO Michael Mestrovich tells a remarkable story of how the agency quickly shifted from telework in the hundreds to remote capabilities for state's entire 107,000-person workforce. New and existing capabilities were instrumental in accomplishing state's most important mission over the past three months rapidly repatriating more than 100,000 Americans around the world, and maintaining worldwide financial and logistical systems that enable such feats. The investments would continue to pay tremendous dividends down the line, as Mestrovich estimates that the three-month whirlwind of tech improvements have advanced agency IT modernization by four to five years. So, Michael, can you provide some metrics to illustrate the success of your work during the pandemic? We consider that the Department of State has 107,000 users, and I, I, I just throw that number out there because that's the number that we use for, for licensing purposes for, for Microsoft. So um, that constitutes not only domestic employees, but it constitutes all the workforce that we have overseas. It includes foreign service, civil service, and it includes all of our locally employed staff. So that's, that's kind of the top line number that we use from, a, from an accounts perspective. When we started off back in February, telework was probably in the hundreds. This Department of State is a very um, long-lived institution, and uh, people came into the office and meetings were held in office spaces. And so telework was probably seen as kind of an accommodation. Maybe you had a long illness or something, but telework certainly wasn't considered a way that I think the vast majority of the workforce could actually effectively perform their functions. 
we all had PCs at our desks. It wasn't an organization where people had laptops. Now we had switched over to mobile devices for several years. And so people had mobile phones and tablets and they were familiar with working remotely through those. But as I'm sure you're well aware, there's a big difference between consuming content through a mobile device and the active art of creating content, which you probably need to, I would argue, a little bit more of a robust platform to do that on. Just ergonomically, screen space, how you collaborate with other people, um, jointly modifying documents. So I think, yeah, from a mobile perspective, we had deployed 40,000 mobile devices and we'd had those out there for years. And that was a great way for people to keep up to speed on what was going on. But it really probably wasn't effective for the masses to go create content and continue the promotion of diplomacy and foreign policy. So very, very quickly, uh, knowing we weren't going to get, you know, 100,000 laptops out to people in the matter of a couple of weeks, we enabled two things. We had remote access via a virtual desktop, and we actively ramped up that capacity. So we, you know, had, had capacity for 5,000. We doubled that in the space of like two or three weeks to get that to 10,000. And then we put in some equipment orders to scale that up into the 15,000 range. In the process of doing that, we upgraded firewalls immediately. We upgraded internet circuits from anywhere from five to seven gig to 10 gig at our data centers. And, and, and then we, probably the lifesaver, we turned on something called Go Browser, which is effectively a, using a web browser on your local computer. You can basically log into Office 365 and, and then you have all the published applications. So now you can do full-blown Word, Excel, PowerPoint, your Outlook is there. And through that same mechanism, we ended up publishing internal applications. So you think of all the HR applications. Well, we published all those. So people could, again, through their web browser, get access to effectively on-prem corporate applications such as the HR, travel, awards, those types of things. So what was a key is we're still bringing people on to the organization, right? Well, you now you have to, how do you onboard them? How do you train them? So we were able to publish through that browser-based mechanism all of those training mechanisms or training material as well. That was our initial pivot, and we were able to effectively get 100,000, 107,000 people remote access capability through either their mobile device, through a web browser based on their home computer, through a virtual platform, a, a virtual desktop implementation, uh, or we, or through a laptop. And we had put in some orders for additional laptops. So today, I think we have about 3,000 laptops out there. But those were basically the four mechanisms by which we went to pursue telework. And we released a telework survey, I want to say at the beginning of May, maybe the end of April, beginning of May. And we just went over the results here in the past couple of weeks. 80% of the respondents had rated their telework experience as positive. You know, that's, that's huge for us. Tell us about some of your largest priorities and successes during the last few months. What are you the proudest of, either from the IT team or the agency? Right. Well, I think probably the thing that everybody in the department is, is most proud about is the fact that we've repatriated, as of this week, 100,000 Americans who had been stranded overseas since the beginning of this crisis. And so, you know, airlines dried up. Uh, people couldn't get bookings on flights. There were a whole host of airline restrictions, depending on the country you were leaving from or going to. People were in small remote villages. They couldn't make it to the capital cities. And so we had, the department had to charter aircraft, make deals with airlines. Uh, we had to get in touch with embassies locally to put out the word to these expats. Do you need assistance to get out? Do you need to come to an airport? Need us to come get you? So, I mean, certainly in the span of this entire pandemic, we've repatriated 100,000 Americans who were stranded overseas and needed to get back to the country. And that's, you know, I think everybody's extremely proud of that. 
I, I can't say enough about the efforts that went in, into doing that. In addition to that, we still had to process visas and passports for people. While there was a decline in the requirements for passports and visas just due to travel, again, you have all these Americans that are coming back. Do they have their passport? Have they lost their passport? How are they going to get home? They may not be bringing U.S. citizens who are family members back. And so how do you process visas for those people? So we still had to do a visa processing and a passport processing while we were having people telework. And then I think the third piece that I think we're also really, really proud about is we have a huge financial system uh, that still pays for foreign aid. It still pays. We had to, we had to pay airlines in, in instances to get these people on flights. And so we have a very, very dispersed financial group across the globe, and they have major processing centers. And we were able to keep them online. So we were able to give them the tools and the equipment that they needed to be able to process all the paperwork that was necessary to keep the whole system afloat from a financial perspective. Nobody went without a paycheck. Uh, all the bills got paid. All the invoices came in. And so that was another piece that I think people are really, really proud about. Are there specific IT needs and systems that require adjustments because the State Department operates in so many countries? Right. I don't know if there are any, quote, unique requirements. I will say this. We had deployed laptops to some number of folks. And one group in particular, our medical group, first of all, they needed a surge in laptops. The second thing is we had been dealing internally with our security folks about enabling the cameras and the microphones that are embedded in those laptops. And we, and we got through that. We reached back out remotely to all these laptops that we had deployed. And through the BIOS, we're able to re-enable cameras and microphones. And you might say, well, that's, that's no big deal. The important point of that is because these laptops, people were, they were using the cameras and the microphones to conduct telemedicine. And so they were interviewing American citizens, determining whether or not they had symptoms of COVID-19, were making assessments on the ground if they, if they needed to be quarantined, if they needed medication. It's not a unique IT requirement, but that's one of the cases where IT was really thrust into the forefront of how we can make a medical assessment as to the health of the individual before we put them on aircraft. Did the pandemic change anything from an IT perspective in countries that have more robust communication infrastructure versus those that don't? So we had two enterprise collaboration platforms, Microsoft Teams and Cisco's WebEx. Those were the two enterprise collaboration platforms. The thing that made WebEx useful in many instances was there was a dial-in number and the dial-in number was unique to individual countries. So if you were in, and I'm making this up because I don't know that there's a dial-in number yeah. for Ghana, uh, but if you're in Ghana, you could dial the local Ghana number and still get into WebEx as opposed to having to dial a U.S. toll-free number across and, and incur international charges. And so that was one of the things that certainly helped out from the WebEx perspective is the people that didn't have the app on their phone or didn't have good bandwidth and wanted to hear what was going on anyway and wanted to be just an audio participant, they could do that because there were local dial-in numbers um, from, from many, many countries of the world. I don't, I don't think it's ubiquitous, but, but it was many more than we had for, for any other collaboration platform that was out there. We do have instances where people said, you know, the bandwidth in my country is limited, and so I'm not able to fully participate in these web collaboration kind of platforms, and so I can only do audio only. Some folks did use Zoom, worked for them. It's not an enterprise platform. I don't know that if we offered a differentiated services necessarily by country, but 
but certainly the infrastructure of the country that you were in certainly may have impacted the user's experience to utilize some of the tools and the capabilities. That is something that we have to consider when we roll these out, because you're right, not everybody has the bandwidth of, say, in North America or a Western Europe or a Singapore or Japan or in South Korea. Can you tell us what systems have worked best in the pandemic? Are there lessons learned from that, from IT modernization, cloud, cyber, authentication, those types of things? In this instance, we let cloud do what cloud does best, which is just scale out as demand increases. As I mentioned early on, we had a couple of different remote access systems. The virtual desktop system, that's all our infrastructure. And so there was a long lead time to buy more equipment and get it in and get it racked. That was actually like a 90-day lead time from the time we said, we want to increase VDI capability from the 10,000 to the 15,000. Well, that, that took 90 days to get that equipment ordered and, and brought in. Now, again, we are in the middle of a pandemic, so the supply chains are all up in upheavals. But still, there was a long lead time to get that equipment in and bring it in. When we used the browser-based mechanism through Office 365, that was instantaneous. We could scale that to 100,000 people overnight. Likewise, our identity management systems, which were in the cloud, scaled immediately to accommodate 100,000 people. WebEx and Team, cloud-based collaboration platforms, scaled immediately to handle the load. I mean, we didn't have to lift a finger from an infrastructure perspective. Now, you pay for that, right? I mean, you're paying now for consumption costs and you're paying an extra licensing cost. But if you wanna talk about the flexibility and the ease of expansion, we let the cloud platforms do exactly what they did best. And you know, over, overnight we were able to scale to the 100,000 user level because we had moved to Office 365. We had already implemented Cisco's WebEx cloud-based collaboration platform. We had implemented ServiceNow. And so we were able to iterate on de- developing applications for ServiceNow. That's another great point that I don't think that I covered. We had delivered, I want to say, 10 or 12 ServiceNow-based apps in the span of like three or four weeks. And these were, these were big apps. These were like the apps that tracked every single country on the planet and what their COVID requirements were. If you came from North America to Great Britain, did you have to quarantine? If you went from Great Britain to Germany, did you have to quarantine? If you did, what were the quarantine requirements? So there's a, a huge tracking mechanism that shows what phase these countries are in, what phase our posts are in, what are the COVID requirements? All that was done through the ServiceNow platform. And teams were able to pop those dashboards well, they're real applications. They were able to pop those applications out in a matter of weeks and then iterate on them as, as new requirements came up. And that's a huge success story because before it would have taken us months to figure out what the requirements of the application were and then go back to the development. But with these platform-based services, we're able to iterate on those almost instantaneously. What keeps you up at night when you're thinking about this magnified cyber vulnerabilities in the pandemic or any other emerging threats that may come along in the post-pandemic world? We don't have people in buildings that are protected by guards and gates and guns in their homes. If it's a government issued device, we really don't know who's around it, whether, whether it's left unattended, are there cleaning crews that come through on any given day? I mean, it's, it's out in the wild. And so there is an enhanced cyber threat against those. And then if people are using their own personal computers, we really don't want them downloading to their personal computers, government information that may have PII or may have proprietary contract material on it because we don't know the security posture of that person's individual computer. And so, yeah, we do have new concerns as they relate to cybersecurity because now devices are either in an uncontrolled space necessarily, or we're allowing people to use, again, cloud-based resources 
for the conduct of business, but that's through a, through a personal computer that we don't really have visibility on. So those are different security concerns of ours, for sure. Now the question is, how do we implement technologies that understand that environment and still work with the user to get done what they need to get done, but take into account, you know, the implications of how they're doing that work? So we get into things like cloud application security brokers now, um, which we're, we're pressing ahead to implement that. Um, I've mentioned the identity management. Interestingly enough, we had just enforced multi-factor authentication across the enterprise right at the beginning of December of last year. And that was a lifesaver for us because now everybody had enrolled in MFA. So now we could enforce multi-factor authentication across the board, no matter where a user logged in from. And so that was a great help for us to ensure at least the integrity of the user that was coming in uh, to access our systems. What about the benefits of the CDM program? Has that been helping during the pandemic? I'm certainly not as close to that as our cybersecurity team or our CISO has been. So I, I don't know that I could comment really one way or, other, or the other on that particular program. What I can say is we had begun a data analytics program at the end of last summer. And this was data analytics on IT log data that we brought in. And so we are bringing in log data now um, from not only the government devices that we have provided, but we're, and I want to be careful how I say this, we're not bringing in log data from people's personal computers, but we are bringing in log data from the browsers that they use to access the government cloud infrastructure. So we're certainly not monitoring what they do on their personal computer, but when they access one of our cloud infrastructures, we can bring in the log data that shows what the browser type is that they use, what the operating system is that they have underneath that browser, where they're logging in from geographically speaking based on the IP address. That helps in our security reviews because we understand the browser mechanisms that people are using. And so what are the endpoints that we really need to protect and what are the protection mechanisms that we need to build, put in place there? What do you take away as the greatest lesson learned since the pandemic began? You know, the, the biggest lesson learned, I think, is that it's not the technology. It's the organizational process flow. It's the business side of the house that is... Um, the long pole in the tent. Like I said, we've been able to push out technology easy. And to our users' credit, they've been able to absorb it and adapt to it. I mean, we, we hit them with a whole series of new technologies, and they were very adept at getting comfortable with those new technologies. So I got to give them credit there. Where we struggle is these age-old applications or age-old business processes that we have on the back end. Here's a classic case in point. All of our ATO paperwork, the process flow for the ATO paperwork was, I need a wet signature on a document to show that the ATO was granted. Well, we're, we're not getting to, we're not mailing these documents around, right? And so how do we, so very simple, like how do you put in place digital signatures so that we can get digital signatures on these PDF documents to move them around and then incorporate that into this workflow that allows the process to continue to move as it would previously. The other piece, we probably could have done something around this, is help desk. Um, we moved people to a remote help desk. We said, you know, go home. We'll enable cloud-based uh, automated call distribution systems. You can sit at your home, put your headset on. You'll be fully, fully capable of acting as a help desk participant. But boy, were the help desks flooded with calls. Because again, you know, in a matter of weeks, you're having 100,000 people go operate a completely new way. And as much as you try to make it seamless and intuitive, 
there's going to be things you didn't factor in, like somebody's using a version of Chrome that's never been updated in three years, and it's on an operating system that hasn't been updated in two years. <laughs> so, I mean, those are some of the things that people are going to call in with. So the help desk was flooded with calls. And I think we knew we were going to get an uptick in calls, but I just don't think, I don't know that it was a surprise, but it certainly was an area that if we had to do it over again, we, we could probably plan a little bit different to make some contingencies on. Okay. What have you seen from your perspective in terms of collaboration? What's worked well and where's there room for some improvement? You know, interestingly enough, we stood up these collaboration platforms and so WebEx is easy, right? I mean, anybody can participate in WebEx. You send them the link. If they have a browser, they can click on the link. They can call in through their computer. If they don't have a computer, they can dial in. So in those types of scenarios, it gives people a lot of flexibility in the way that they can dial in. Identity to management and the ability to do federated identity management is really a key enabler in collaborating with either other governmental organizations or educational entities or non-government organizations. And that's the big one. And so we've been able to use our identity management systems to extend trust to other organizations. And that's important because in those situations where I can, I can bring people in and then I can give them a much richer experience because I'm able to expose to them more proprietary data or bring them in the kind of behind the virtual firewall and have much more of a collaborative session with them than I can for folks that I can't extend that digital trust to because there's just a lack of identity management. I think having those identity management systems and them being able to communicate with each other and trust one another's roots of certificate, that helps enable uh, intergovernment or interagency collaboration. I don't necessarily think it's all about everybody having the same platform. The internet wasn't built that way. So I'm not, I'm not dead set on you have to have my collaboration platform, but you do need to be able to present an identity in a way that says you're trusted in your inside versus we have less trust about you. So we have to keep you on the outside. What's worked well when it comes to best practices, sharing IT between teams and leaders and cross government? How has your agency worked with others? I think that's been really good. I mean, OMB has continued to have CIO council sessions, even though they're virtual. They send out weekly updates on topics of conversation. So I know, you know, the CIOs are talking there. I saw something last week about, you know, should we talk about best practices for distributing mobile devices or mobile management? And so I know that there's been a lot of conversations in that space. Understandably, the agencies are all different. So some had always prided themselves on being a very mobile workforce. And so it equipped their workforce with, with laptops from the get-go. And so when you said, all right, everybody go home, go work somewhere else, it was easy because they're just used to that. There's other organizations where you kind of have to come in. In our particular cases, I'm sure is the case with DOD and maybe energy, there's a large volume of the population that needs access to classified information on a routine basis. Now, maybe some folks discovered they don't need it every day. Maybe they need it multiple times a week, but still you're going to have to go into a controlled facility in order to have access to that information. And so just understanding, I think, what your population demographics look like and how you need to service them, I think has been helpful. Okay, let's return to the early days of the pandemic. What were your first few weeks like and what is your new normal? So obviously in the first few weeks, it was all about IT. And I, and I don't mean that to be self-serving. We had seven calls a week with different groups across the department. It was on the pandemic, but IT was a participant in that. And for the first two to three weeks, the vast majority of those calls were about two different things. Number one, medical, like how do I get my people out? And number two, you know, how, how are we going to use this IT system to do what we normally did? That was the first three weeks. And after the first three weeks, things settled down and IT didn't be, was not in the forefront of those conversations. And so 
I was happy about that because people got used to using the tool sets. That's on the provisioning of IT side. Then there was the people just getting used to telework side, which was also coinciding with that first three weeks. So yes, it was a hectic IT environment, but also people showed up at their desks at six o'clock in the morning and they didn't leave until five o'clock at night. I mean, they were in wherever their telework space was all day long. And they were there because Teams and WebEx, they allowed you to go from one meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting to the next meeting without any break. And so whereas before you would naturally walk from one building to the next or they wouldn't schedule meetings and they give you a 30 minute break because they knew that you had different geographies or you were going to drive to a different, all of that's thrown out the window. And then after a while, people figure out, well, I, I can get this person online immediately. I, like, I can call them on Teams and it'll ring on their phone. It'll ring on their laptop. It'll ring on their home computer. I'll find them no matter where the heck they are. We'll, and we'll be able to have this conversation and I'll bring in three of my friends and we'll close the gap on this thing. And, we'll, and so I think the productivity increased a lot, but you could see it in the people. People were really exhausted because they just didn't take time to take a break and to get up and walk around. And we had to tell people, look, you got to manage your time a little bit better. Otherwise, this is, this is a marathon. This isn't going to be over soon. And so I think now people have adapted. You can see that they put in their schedules. They put some breaks in there, you know, do not schedule. And so they put some buffers in so that they can kind of have those natural breaks. But I think that was across the board. Once people got used to the tools for telework, they found that they were really productive. And I think they overused them than they were overproductive. Are there other stories or anecdotes you'd like to share? Something important or inspiring? We probably advanced the state of information technology. And by that, I mean modernizing the workplace. We probably pushed that in the span of three months, which would have normally taken us two to maybe as much as four or five years had we been left to the normal course of business. There was a clear necessity to do business a different way. I'm not going to say that there was a different risk appetite, but there was an imperative that said, all right, you know, if it's a really big risk, we understand. But if you're just waxing poetic or if this is hypothetical, we don't have time for that right now. We got to get things done. And so I think we were able to really push the envelope of where we, we always knew we wanted to go. We're, we, haven't, we haven't deviated from the plan, but I think we were able to implement the plan significantly faster because this gave us kind of a forcing function. And what we've now seen, and, and actually telework is a classic example just in and of itself. There were managers who said, I can never let my person go telework. If you're working five days a week out of the office, you're, you're obviously sloughing off. You're not doing work. That was a real conversation. And now people are saying, wow, like people can be more effective. In our telework survey, people have said, please keep us teleworking. That's the overwhelming majority of the sentiment that has come back. Don't revert. People, I think, have realized that telework is acceptable. People are productive doing it. And that in and of itself, that cultural shift in and of itself would have taken years had it been left to the normal course of events. Any specific shout out to folks, either on your team or across the government? On our team, and I, I've said this in an internal video, but across the board, everybody. I mean, our organization, IRM, you know, when Stuart and I got there, you know, we made it very clear. This is, we intend to make this a family. We are a team. We are all in this together. This is not about any one individual or any one group. We are only going to be successful if we are all pull in the same direction. And to our operations group, they did amazing work getting the tools out. Uh, we have a foreign operations group that coordinated all of these with all of these activities with the posts, 276 posts coordinated overseas. 
They did an enormous amount of work. We've shipped laptops out to people. Our IA team has been incredibly responsive into all the requests that we put forward to them for risk acceptance or risk mitigation. Our budgeting and finance team processing orders in days time. Our contracting team for letting contracts immediately and showing people how to do emergency procurements of equipment. So across the board, this has been 100% a team effort. Like anything, if any one part of the machine breaks down, it, it all comes to a screeching halt. I couldn't be more pleased with how, how much everybody pulled together. What things might we do differently in the future as a result of this experience? The one thing that I think that someone else actually said, I can't take credit for this, is they mentioned in a, in a different forum somewhere that work is what you do, not where you are. And I think if we take one lesson away from this, that's the one lesson is that, you know, we should be able to do the work from wherever we happen to be, as opposed to dragging people all into an office space. Yeah, so my, my fear is that people will start going back to the office and they'll want to revert to the traditional, well, let's have a meeting and let's make sure that everybody's in the meeting, which in and of itself isn't bad, but they'll forget about, well, let's make sure that this meeting is is remote collaboration enabled, i.e. they won't make it a Teams meeting, they won't make it a WebEx meeting, they won't have a dial-in number, right? And so I think it's important that we, and I told our folks this, I said, from going forward, every IRM meeting that I schedule is going to be a collaborative meeting. It's going to be either hosted on Teams or hosted on WebEx. If, if nobody's outside of the office and nobody wants to call in, that's fine, but it's always going to be remotely accessible. And I think we, we just have to get in the habit of doing that so that we can continue to afford people the opportunity to telework. I hope we can do that. But then there's an investment side because a lot of the places where PD people would meet on the inside, they don't have the video cameras or the microphones to, to allow people to collaborate. Um, so we need to do that. We need to enable our, our workplace to, to have the, the multimedia capabilities to allow people to collaborate. So those things, I think, you know, as time goes by, more and more people will certainly go back to the office. We're social animals. We need that engagement. There's always going to be something missed where you, you just had that idle conversation with somebody in the hallway and that moves something forward. There's going to be a desire to do that. And so I think that that'll naturally happen. But I do want to preserve this telework capability because I think so many, it, it's such it's such a quality of life issue, not only for the current staff, but for recruiting. As the young workforce that's coming up, you know, time and time management is very valuable to them. It's not so much salary and position. And so affording them the opportunity to be able to kind of set their own schedules and work at their own pace, I think will be very, very valuable uh, from a recruiting perspective because we're competing for the same talent that the Googles and the Amazons and everybody else on the planet are competing for. And so we've got to be able to offer um, similar work environments from a quality of life perspective. Okay, so one of the big changes in the IT world is no more in-person conferences. How do you envision interacting with industry? Again, we're social animals. We, we're going to want to get together. And so I think from a business perspective and from an industry perspective, we're going to still want to go do EBCs. We're going to want to fly to meet the company at their headquarters and do the dog and pony show of the research lab. And I think we're going to continue with that. However, I think we have now been afforded this new opportunity. And so instead of simply saying the only way we can do this is to get on an airplane and fly to your location, we now have these other alternatives that we can say are equally uh, effective. At least it gives us another alternative. I don't know that it's gonna replace business travel or, or conferences or that type of thing, but it may give people who were otherwise disadvantaged and couldn't go an opportunity to participate. 
Today, we've been talking with Department of State Principal Deputy CIO Michael Mestrovich. Michael, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. Well, great. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for joining Meritalk's podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT in the COVID Crisis. We hope you'll continue to join us as we take a look at Federal IT's reaction to the crisis, the challenges faced along the way, and ultimately, the success stories that have kept America rolling. This episode was brought to you by ServiceNow.